Bakersoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. The Thorn in the Nest, Episode 6 There's even-handed justice for ye, stranger. A stalwart black backwoodsman in hunting garb of dressed skins was the speaker, and the words were addressed to Kenneth, near to whom he had stood during the brief trial of Bill Slack. Dale had walked away in company with a brother lawyer, and Kenneth was turning from the unpleasant scene with a thought of pity for the weakness and wickedness of the unhappy criminal. Yes, he answered, Squire Smith is a man of discriminating mind and judgment, very impartial in his decisions and prompt in seeing them carried out. But what a happy world this might be if all were honest and upright. That's true, but we've got to take it as it is. Got quite a town here, pursued the hunter, moving along by Kenneth's side as he walked up the street. Last time I was round here in these parts, there wasn't so much as in wigwam to be seen. Nothing but the thickest kind o' thick woods. I thought your face was quite new to me, said Kenneth. May I ask where you are from? You can ask, sir, and I haven't the least objection in life to tell him. I've been hunt hunting and trapping all through this northwestern territory, along the Ohio and the Little Miami, and away up north by the Great Lakes, and even as far as the headwaters of the Mississippi. And I come back with a lot of furs and skins, sewed mostly in Detroit. Ah, exclaimed Kenneth with interest, you must have had an adventurous life and fallen in with many tribes of Indians. Hump, yes, young man, saw a good deal more of them than I cared to. I hain't no love of them for them and no more have they for me. You have had some encounters with them? More than a few, stranger. I've taken their scalps and been mighty near losing my own. Have been in their clutches several times, run the gauntlet twice, and would have been burnt at the stake if I hadn't made my escape. However, I haven't any more to tell than any other man that's been hunting and trapping for ten or a dozen years. Kenneth invited him into his office, set food and drink before him, and by dint of adroit questioning drew from him a good deal of information in regard to the various tribes among whom he had been. Have you ever met with any whites living with them? he asked at length. Yes, occasionally. There's Simon Gertie. I saw him, and he's a worse savage than but any others? Any women? I met another man that was a prisoner, got away afterwards, and saw children at different times, girls and boys, both that they'd stole away from their folks and adopted. And I saw a white woman a few weeks ago that's been with them for years, got a family of papooses. In reply to further questions, he went on to describe the situation of the Indian village where he had seen this woman, but could give no description of her, except that she was very much tanned, dressed like the squaws, and had scarcely a more civilized look than they. I hope she's no kin of yours, he remarked, looking keenly at his questioner. No, I never had friend or relative taken by them, Kenneth answered, though our family were pioneers and several of them lost their lives by the Indians. Humph, then I reckon you hain't no love for em either. Not so much as I ought to have, I'm afraid. 
How's that? Can't say as I see any call to love him at all. They are human creatures, and Christ died for them as well as for the white man. Doubtless they are equally dear to him. Kenneth answered with gentle gravity, fixing a kindly look upon his rough companion. Well now, they may be, the man returned thoughtfully. Fact is, I've never paid much attention to those things. Minister, are ye? No, a doctor. Find much to do about here? Not just now, Kenneth answered aloud, adding to himself, Happily, I can very well be spared for a few days. Upon the departure of the backwoodsman from the office, Zeb was summoned and directed to saddle Romeo and have him at the door by the time his master should have returned from a round of visits among his town patients. I'm going off on a hunt, Zeb, and shall want my gun, blanket, and some provisions. Get me some parched corn bread and a little salt, and pack them in one end of my saddlebags. Was his final order? Yes, sir. You'll take me long, I suppose? interrogatively. No, Zeb, I'm going alone. I must leave you to take care of the office and see who calls. I shall be away for two or three days, or longer, and shall want to know when I return who have been want wanting the doctor, that I may go to them at once. Tain't just the very bestest time will be year for a hunt, muttered the boy, watching him strode rapidly down the street. Wonder what sort of game Master Doctor's going after. By noon of that day, Kenneth had put several miles of hill and valley between him and Chili Coffee. He had gone, telling no one whither or on what errand he was bound, and those who saw him leaving the town took it for granted that he had a call to some sick person in the country. His course was northwesterly, and for days he pressed on sturdily in that direction, taking an hour's rest at noon, subsisting on the provisions in his saddlebags, and such small games as came in his way, at night kindling a fire to keep off the wild beasts, and sleeping on the ground wrapped in his blanket with his horse picketed nearby. His way lay through pathless forests and over trackless prairies, where perhaps the foot of white man had never trod. The solitude was utter, and the compass his only guide. Not a human creature did he meet, but during the hours of darkness his ears were greeted with the cry of the panther and the howl of the wolf. Now far in the distance, now close at hand, but brave by nature and strong in faith, Kenneth committed himself to the care of him who neither slumbers nor sleeps, and there in the wilderness rested as securely in the shadow of his wing as though in the midst of civilization and compassed by walls and bulwarks. But in regard to the success or failure of the object of his journey, he was not equally calm and trustful. How is it that our faith is apt to be so weak in respect to our Father's loving control of those things which affect affect our happiness in this life. Even when we trust him to him unhesitatingly, the far greater interest is of eternity. Ah, how slow we are to believe that word. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Such was Kenneth's experience at this time, earnestly striving, yet with but partial success, to throw off the burden of care and anxiety that oppressed him, now urging his steed forward with almost feverish haste, himself half panting with eagerness and excitement, and anon bringing it to a walk, while with head drooping and heavy sighs bursting from his bosom, he seemed half inclined to turn and retrace his steps. 
This hesitation, this shirking from the result of his quest, grew upon him as he advanced. But at length, what weakness is this, he cried aloud. God helping me, I will throw it off and meet this crisis with Christian courage. Should the very worst come, it cannot peril that which I have committed to his hand. Blessed be his holy name for that gracious word. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. With the last words, his voice rang out triumphantly on the silent air. Romeo pricked up his ears at the sound, and quickened his pace to a rapid canter. Right, my brave fellow, said his master, patting his neck, on now with spirit, we are not far from the end of this long jaunt. They were crossing a prairie, a sea of waving grass, bespangled with flowers of many and gorgeous hues, beyond which lay a thick wood. It was afternoon of the third day, and the sun near its setting, as they plunged into the wood. Here the light had already grown dim, and soon darkness compelled a halt. Kenneth dismounted, secured his horse in the usual way, gathered dry branches and leaves, and with the aid of flint and steel had presently a bright fire blazing. A couple of birds, which he had shot during the day, hung at his saddle bow. These he quickly stripped of their feathers and prepared for cooking, which he managed by suspending them before the fire, each on the end of a pointed stick, whose other end was thrust well into the ground. A bit of cornbread from his saddlebags, and water from a running stream nearby, filled up the complement of viands that formed his simple repast. He had just, but just begun it when a slight sound like the crackling of a dry twig near at hand made him look up. The flickering firelight showed him a tall, dark form creeping stealthily toward him, another and much smaller one close at its heels. He instinctively put out his hand for his gun lying by his side, then drew it back as he perceived that the approaching strangers were a woman and, a, and child. The former was wrapped in an Indian blanket and carried a papoose on her back. Me friend, she said in broken English, me hungry, papoose hungry, pointing to the little one trotting at her side. Sit down and I will feed you, Kenneth answered, making room for her near the fire. She seated herself upon the roots of a tree. The child, crouching at her feet, laid the babe, which, she, with, which was sleeping soundly across her lap, and taking the food he offered, shared it with the other child. Something in her look and manner half startled Kenneth. He hastily threw a pine knot upon the fire. It burst into a bright blaze, throwing a strong light upon the face and figure of the stranger, and Kenneth's heart throbbed as he looked keenly at her, at first beating high with hope, then almost it stood still in disappointment and despair. She is too young, he sighed to himself, then speaking aloud, You are a white woman, he said. Squaw, she answered, shaking her head. You have grown up among the Indians, have perhaps forgotten your own parents, he remarked, gazing earnestly upon her, but your blood is white, you have not an Indian feature, your eyes are blue, your hair is red and curly. She evidently, but half comprehended what he was saying, gave him no answer save an inquiring, bewildering look. He called to his aid the slight knowledge he had gained of the Indian tongue, and at length succeeded in making himself understood. 
At first she utterly denied that she belonged to the white race, repeating her assertion that she was a squaw, but finally admitted that he was right, acknowledging that she had a faint recollection of being carried away by the Indians in her very early childhood. He asked if she would not like to go back, at which she answered very emphatically that she would not. She was the squaw of a young Indian brave, and the mother of these his children, loved husband, and loved and children dearly, and would on no account leave them. She had strayed from her camp that day and lost her way in the woods, but would find it again and go back to the Indian village, distant not more than two or three miles, when the moon was up. He ceased his persuasions, but regarded her with interest, thinking how sad it was that the child of civilized, perhaps Christian parents should have become so entirely savage. He asked if she knew of any other white woman among the Indians. She did not. He talked to her of God and of Christ, telling the sweet story of the cross, but was doubtful how much of it she was able to grasp. She listened with a half-interested, half-puzzled air, a gleam of intelligence occasionally lighting up her somewhat stolid face. But the silvery rays of the moon came stealing through the branches overhead, and rousing the older child who had fallen asleep on the ground at her feet, the woman arose, shouldered her still slumbering babe, and wrapped her blanket about her gave Kenneth a farewell nod, and with the little one trotting at her heels as before, quickly disappeared amid the deep shadows of the wood. The object of Kenneth's journey had been accomplished. The tiny flame of hope, enkindled by the information gleaned from the hunter, had gone out in darkness, and naught remained for him but to take up again his burden of secret grief and care, and go on with life's duties with what courage and patience he might. Weary with the day's travel, he yet made no movement toward preparation for sleep. Long hours he sat over his fire in an attitude of deep despondency, hands clasped about his knees, head bowed upon his breast. Then kneeling upon the ground, he poured out his soul in prayer. Lord, the cross is very heavy, the cup very bitter. Yet how light and sweet compared with what thou didst spare and drink for me. Forgive, oh, forgive the sin of thy servant. Who am I that I dare complain or murmur? Lord, hear the cry of thy servant. Strengthen him that he rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him, though it be till his feet stand upon the other shore. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acresoft Story Classic.